0: First John chapter two, I'm gonna ask you to stand to your feet. But again, as I kind of mentioned before, you might be wondering why are we doing that? I think our posture is another act of worship. And not to say that if you stand you have a better act of worship than if you sit. That's not what I'm saying. Some of you need to sit right now. But if you're able, sometimes we want to bring our, our best. To the Lord. And so sometimes not sitting there in our comfy chairs, but standing together in one fashion, let us listen to the words of Scripture. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. and walks in darkness, and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Father, right now we ask that by your Spirit you would give us a receptive heart. Not a defensive heart, but a receptive heart. Not a heart that justifies our actions, but a heart that is humble and willing to receive whatever it is that you desire for us to walk away with this morning. Father, we know that every word that jumps off the pages of Scripture is ordained by you from eternity past for such a time as this. So I pray that we would come ready to listen, ready to receive, and even more than that, ready to follow through with what you tell us. We ask that you would bless this time of our worship, Lord, through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat right now. You know, there's uh, companies are known more often than not, not necessarily by their philanthropic expression at all times, but usually by their branding. Um, I didn't, you know, as I was mulling over even how I was going to start the sermon, ideas came to mind that I did not have yet time to put a bunch of pictures up behind me. But if I were to say, you know, put a big swoosh sign... What was the what would be the name that comes to your mind if you saw this big red swoosh? Nike. Now why is that? Why do you think that's Nike? Go ahead. Branding, Branding yeah. Nike has a certain logo and of course a certain motto, right? Just do it. We know that because it's been instilled or ingrained into us. We just know. We can see the sign. We don't even have to read the letters. All we know is we see the little, the little like kind of branding symbol. We're like, that's Nike. Yep, that's what they do. Uh, one particular article of clothing that I like to sometimes be able to afford, and at times I can when they're on discount, but I like Arterix uh, clothing wear. Uh, they're not the most cheapest of all clothes out there. Uh, So when you get a good sale, I like to get them. But they have a a, kind of an iconic symbol of this kind of like dead skeleton of a bird uh, kind of pointing way back, according in their mind, millions of years ago. And so, uh, but I love uh, that clothing company. But when I see that, I go like, oh, that's Arteryx. I don't need to see the name. I just know it because of the, the particular icon that they have chosen for their brand. Some of you even uh, asked both me and my wife this, and that is, how in the world do you tell your identical boys apart? And although if you're around them long enough, you, there's, there's mannerisms, there's kind of uh, just ways that they talk or even act, but there's a lot of crossover as well. But there is one particular feature that makes Jonathan set apart from his brother Matthew. Do you know what that is? It's a birthmark. It's a birthmark. If you look at his arm, there's a left arm there. There's actually a spot. It's an identity marker. So if you're wondering, of course, if you wear a long sleeve, you're really screwed. But, um, <laughs> but if he wears a short sleeve, you can actually go like, uh, which one am I talking to? Look at the arms. Jonathan stands out because he has a birthmark. And that's how you all, we used to think it was because the stitches that were in his head and then Matthew went and busted up his head. Now they both have gashes in their head. So <laughs> that identity marker does not work anymore. But there is one that Matthew has yet to uh, compete for, and that is the birthmark. Let me ask you this question. What is the birthmark for the Christian? What is the birth, Go ahead. Across. That actually is a great, great. You're actually, I would actually probably say you're just right. Um, but that's not what I was actually looking for, but I actually like your answer better. <laughs> Shoot, I got to get a different sermon now. <laughs> no, that was really good. No, so I'm going to ask it with that in mind. That is true. That is the iconic symbol, you know, for a Christian. But there is another kind of birthmark that identifies Christians among everyone else, ideally. Mike, you're raising your hand. Is it love? Love with a question mark or love emphatic? (laughs) Yes, you're right. The identity mark, the birthmark for what it means to be a Christian or a follower of Jesus Christ is love. God has established a specific mark by which his children would be recognized among the masses. The mark, and this mark would be a mark Now, if you have not yet been with us up, up until this time as we go through this letter of 1 John, let me just give you a quick, super brief overview or reminder of where we've come from. You might recall, if you have been with us, that John is seeking to instill a confident assurance of Christian salvation. Uh, Particularly to identify specific marks that are true of someone who has genuinely entered into fellowship with God the Father. And up to this point, John has given us two tests, uh, two identity markers, so to speak, that help us or assure us that we are, in fact, children of the King. The first test was a theological test. And that that theological test kind of dealt with our initial acceptance of the gospel of Jesus. In other words, do you recognize that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled with God the Father? And do you recognize that Jesus is our only solution to our sin problem? Sin separates us from God. Jesus reconciles us to God. We have to get that right. All faith, all Christian walk, all being a follower of Jesus starts at that point an acceptance of the gospel of Jesus that I am dead in my sin, but it is only Jesus Christ by God the Father that makes us alive again. That's it. But there's a second test or marker that, help, that assures us of our salvation, and that is what we might call the moral test. The moral test deals with the lifestyle of a person who has received the gospel of Jesus. And Shannon kind of mentioned that even, it's really a lifestyle of obedience. So on one hand, we can profess rightly that Jesus is the only way to God, and and we can even say, I pray the prayer, so to speak, and and I, I believe that Jesus is my savior, but now that you have received that, we enter into a life style as well as a lifetime of obedience not perfect obedience because we all fall short and therefore we have this amazing divine invitation to say come every time you fall short come every time you screw it up and god is eager to forgive us if we could just let that sink in that god is eager to forgive us whoo we would do well but there's a third and final test that we're going to dive in a little bit deeper this morning and reflect on this morning for assurance of salvation. And we might call this the ethical or the, or the social test. And that is the test, as Mike rightly affirmed, the test of love. Specifically, our love for one another. Now, what's interesting about this test, it's not really a test, but we're going to call it that, and and I pray that I will be able to clearly convince you of this or show you this, is that the command to love one another is really a summation of all of God's commands. The command to love one another is really a summation of all of God's commands. In other words, the command to love is not just one out of hundreds of commands, it is the command by which all other commands are fulfilled. Followed. There's an early church tradition uh, where John the Apostle at in his time, he might be hip, called John the Sage, right? He was brought out on a pallet near the end of his life. And of course, John was highly esteemed by everybody. Everybody knew like, he was the last living apostle that walked with Jesus, that, that talked with him. They were a part, he was the, the original 12, right? And so the, he, they, he was well-respected among the church. And all these early church fathers like Jerome and stuff who carry on the legacy are like, okay, John is still with us. We're still gleaning from what what he has, and he comes out on this pallet and he repeats the same thing over and over and over again. And what does he say over and over again? Love the brethren. Love the brethren. I can almost put myself, like, visualize myself there. I'm sitting in the background, he says, Love the brethren. And he's just looking probably at every eye on him. Love the brethren. Love the brethren. Love the brethren. He goes on and on. And finally, when pressed as to why he keeps saying this, John responds, because that is enough. The point is, if we don't get this one command right, then it doesn't matter how much you understand the rest of God's commands. It doesn't matter how much you think you've obeyed God's other commands. If you don't follow this one command, you cannot properly follow any of God's commands. And the reason for this is because all of God's commands are hinged on this one command. All of God's commands are fulfilled by following this one command to love one another. Now, you might say, prove it, Aaron, because again, you shouldn't take my word for it. So let's see what the scriptures have to say about this one command to love the brethren. Jesus says in John 15, for example, he says, this is my commandment. Now, notice grammar is important. He doesn't say, this is one of many of my commandments that I'm giving you today. He says, this is my commandment, singular, that you love one another as I have loved you. These things I command you, in verse 17, he says, I command you so that you will love one another. Paul the Apostle says something similar in his own way. He says in Colossians chapter three, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another brother, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all, Above all these attributes, above all these responses to obedience, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In other words, love is what motivates our forgiveness of one another. Love is what motivates our compassion and our humility and our patience and our kindness for one another. It's no coincidence that on the list, when we go through Galatians chapter 5, when we did that series back a, a, a couple summers ago, the first on the list of the fruit of the Spirit is love. Probably the most straightforward passage, however, that we see in Scripture emphasizing the importance of love is written by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. First Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, 3, Paul says this, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all, and I have if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love I am nothing. And if I give away all that I have and even deliver my up my body to be burned but have not love I gain nothing. What is Paul the Apostle really saying there? If I could summarize it in this way, he says this, I may have the ability, you may have the ability to speak in angelic languages, to have prophetic powers, to have divine wisdom that is beyond what most people can aspire to. Uh, You may have the ability to trust in God in an unwavering way. You might even have the gift of faith You may be the most philanthropic or generous person. You may be the one who sacrifices the most. You might have divine abilities. But if these divine abilities and these incredible acts or expressions are not motivated by divine love, Paul says they mean nothing. In other words, in the absence of love, divine gifts can only result in disruptive babble whereby you gain nothing and you become nothing. And so the ethical command to love one another is not merely one of many of God's commands to follow. It is the command by which all other commands are properly followed. Remember the prodigal son parable that that I mentioned last week. We talk about a lot to the the younger rebellious brother who left home, but eventually came back and we celebrate that fact, but that's not what the parable is about. That's not who the parable's for. It's about the elder brother, the religious Pharisee, the one who stayed home and he did all the right things. He obeyed his father, but he did not have loveless obedience. I mean, his obedience was loveless, not obedience out of love. And so he was just as lost Is his younger rebellious brother. John says, Love one another. And by our love for one another, we can also be assured that we are in right fellowship with God and that our salvation is secure. Now, I think an important question that we have to ask and therefore answer at this juncture is what is love? Because we can talk about love, right? And I'm not talking about that old Hathaway song, you know, what is love? You know, we won't go into that, (laughs) though I can't help it to go through my mind a little bit. I'm asking what is love because the world and our respective cultures and and our subjective leanings have adopted and and promoted and actually in many ways sabotaged this word love. So what is love? Well, if you were to ask the average person on the street, perhaps, um, or even to kind of go on Google there and just can maybe type that in, there's all kinds of expressions or ideas about what love is. You know, there's many, many music artists will actually sing songs about love. Right? We all love the love songs, right? All we need is love, right? That's kind of to help relate to you, older folk in there. So, you're welcome. All we need is love. That's great. But we still don't know what love is. Or you, or you look around at people's yards sometimes, and I'm not knocking the sign necessarily, but, uh, but it is. it just makes me kind of think a little bit. Love is love. Okay. But what is it? Or if you look on, most people, you know, when you look at a kind of a, I got a minor degree in psychology, so when you look at psychology uh, uh, websites and stuff, you know, they they have all kinds of kind of a a clinical approach to love, and they'll say that love is both biology as well as as a result of culture. It involves intimacy and compassion and commitment, but it's really a process of evolution by which allowed us to kind of cohabitate together and, and continue on with our species that may have some partial truth in it. Or if you learn to look at the Greek language, because again, the, the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, uh, we oft, it always gets translated as love for us, but in Koine Greek, or the common Greek in Jesus' day, we see that there was a multiple words for this term or word love. For example, in Greek, love could be eros, where we, where we get the word erotic, it's considered to be the romantic love. and It doesn't always mean like sexual activity or desire or anything, but, uh, but it can include that. It's the romantic, we, the, probably the way to understand it most is just the romantic love. But there's also what we call phileo love. And that is what is referred to as brotherly love the kind of love that a friend has for another or or the kind of love that a brother has for another brother. And so if we were to contrast eros with phileo, we see that eros lovers are preoccupied with one another. But in contrast, phileo friends are preoccupied with the same things or interests. So in the context or in the institution of marriage, there is a kind of a romantic love that ideally exists between you and your spouse. And at the same time, there's a phileo love. You can have really close friends. Look at that. You're in the hiking group and stuff. There's a common interest, a common bond, and and that bond continues to grow as they spend time together. But it's a, a phileo love that exists because you like the same things. But there's a third type of love in the Greek that doesn't necessarily get fleshed out as clearly in the English language, and that is love called Agape. Agape love. Agape love is what we might refer to or understand as unconditional love. Agape love is more concerned about the well-being of others before oneself. It is a love that is born out of choice or will than emotions or feelings. It is a commitment and a sacrifice for another person without any expectation of return. It is a love that is given even though it may not be received or given in return. Agape love is unconditional with no expectation of what is received. And this is the kind of love that is described throughout the pages of the New Testament. Not always, sometimes it's phileo, But in our particular context, in our particular letter in 1 John, this is the kind of love that he kept pushing forward. It's an agape love. It's an unconditional love that followers of Jesus are called to give to one another. And probably the best definition of agape love is found in a passage that we just read, but it's a continuation of a passage we just read. If we look at 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4 through 8, Paul says this, love is is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Oftentimes, this is a passage of Scripture that might be preached and elaborated on, maybe in the a, a coming of a marriage union, and that would be appropriate. But the context is really the body of Christ at large. The context in which Paul see, says these things, he's talking to the church in Corinth and he's helping them understand how spiritual gifts are working and how they are so to function one another, ultimately for the purpose of edifying one another and building up the body of Christ. And he says all the, and there's different gifts and everybody's got varying gifts. Some are more invisible, some are more visible, some, some accomplish this, some accomplish that. In the end, he says, I'm going to show you something even better, even greater, You can have these incredible gifts, but watch this. There's something even better, and he launches into this understanding of agape love. Let me read that passage again, but I want to read it in a different translation. I want to read it in the message translation, and just listen. It's not going to be on the screen. Just listen. And I'm not going to say love. I'm going to say agape. Agape cares more for others than for self. Agape doesn't want what it doesn't have. Agape doesn't strut around. Agape doesn't have a swelled head. Agape f- doesn't force itself on others. Agape isn't always me first. Agape doesn't fly off the handle Agape doesn't keep score of sins of others. Agape doesn't reveal when others grovel. Agape takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. Agape puts up with anything. Agape trusts God always. Agape always looks for the best. Agape never looks back but keeps going to the end. Agape. Never dies. Imagine, IBC family, just imagine if we were to consistently relate to our spouse, to our kids, to our grandkids, to our church members especially the ones that really annoy us. To our coworkers, to our bosses, imagine if we were to relate consistently like this. I can't help but wonder or ask the question, how might our, in the environment in our home, how might the, the spirit in our marriage how might the 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 the, um, the place of employment that we work at potentially be changed? How might the persistent cycle of relational conflict dissolve? How might bridges of mercy and grace and reconciliation be built? The fact is, divine agape for one another is the one command by which all of God's commands are fulfilled. Now, as John goes on to say, this command to agape one another is not actually a new command, but it's an old command. He goes on to say, actually, in chapter 3, it's an old command because this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. And this beginning that John's making reference to is actually the very beginning because his contrasting example is that of Cain and Abel. He says, don't be like Cain who, who harbored hatred in his heart. And, an old, and that, that hatred eventually ended up him carrying out this hate and killing his brother Abel. So this is the command that you've had long ago. Love one another. Don't be, in contrast, like Cain who harbored hatred and eventually killed his brother out of jealous hatred. It's also old because this is what was commanded in the Mosaic law. If you look at Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 for example, the law says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Or in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus even affirmed these, these, this twofold commandment in Matthew chapter 22. He says, on these two commandments, loving your neighbor as yourself, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, these two commandments depend the entire law and the prophets. This is also an old commandment because it has—it really has been the message that Jesus taught himself. Recall the Sermon on the Mount, his first sermon, right, right from the gates. He, he, he comes out of the wilderness after being tempted. He, he passes through temptation, perfectly successful, without any disobedience, and he has this crowd of people surrounding him, and he launches in his first sermon called the Sermon on the Mount as we know it today in Matthew 5, and he says, you have heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, let me just say, time out a second. That sounds kind of weird, but that was the mindset in Judaism at that time. He's not saying, like, some people do this. He's like, no, this is how, this is, he's actually identifying what you believe. This was, this was common practice. This was accepted practice in that time. Love your neighbor, love those who you like, basically, and hate your enemy. Love, hate those who you don't like. And then Jesus goes on to say, "But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven." So on one hand, John, John the Sage, John the Apostle says, "This is not a new." Idea. This is not a new concept. It's not a new command. This has been from the very get-go, from the beginning of creation and really after the first sin, almost like the second sin that we're aware of, this has been from the beginning, love one another. But it's also a new commandment. at the same time. It's old and it's also new. And it's new because of what Jesus says in John chapter 13. Look what he says in John 13. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So on one hand, and I think there's literary uh, freedom here, it is an old commandment. And yet, at the same time, it's a new commandment. And the reason why it's a new commandment is that to agape one another is really uh, perfectly exemplified and fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Again, when Jesus, God incarnate, when he came on the scene and took on a human body 2,000 years ago... He lived a perfect life that exemplified and fulfilled this command to love. I think Daniel Atkin, one of the commentators I refer to, he says it well when he says, In Christ, the command to love one another is strengthened, it's deepened, expanded, and given a depth of meaning and understanding never seen before Jesus' coming in his incarnation. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he's like the perfect fulfillment of loving one another. And so while on one hand, 1 Corinthians might offer the best definition of agape love, we see that the perfect demonstration of agape is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. And and all you have to do is look at the Gospels. Brothers, just just read, just pick a gospel. I know the, the student ministry is just going to start or is going through uh, the Gospel of Mark right now. You'll observe very quickly. Look how Jesus relates to people consistently. It's almost like man, he's not like us. Just look how Jesus relates to G- people consistently. For example, Jesus accepted Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary Magdalene, she was like. She's a woman that was referred to by name more often than in most of the apostles even. So she was kind of a big deal. She followed Jesus. She served Jesus. She was an incredible part, incredible part of Jesus's ministry. But Mary Magdalene did not have a rosy past. She had quite the colorful past. In fact, as a couple of the gospel writers even say she was filled with seven devils. Demon-possessed, Jesus saved her, and from that point on, she never looked back. Or look at the patience and the compassion that Jesus had for the rich young ruler. Remember, keep the commandments. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. The rich young ruler thinks, I've done everything. He actually didn't know that he didn't do everything, but he thought. He was under the impression. He did all those things. And Jesus, with compassion, says, go and sell everything and follow me. And he walks away saddened. And yet, even though Jesus, in a sense, almost knows the outcome, he still had compassion and patience and sympathy for the rich young ruler. Look at Nicodemus, the religious Pharisee. Jesus is willing to meet with him at night to kind of uncover of darkness because he doesn't understand what it means to be born again. Look at Zacchaeus, traitor of traitors, tax collector for the Roman Empire, the enemy. And Jesus, surrounded by a lot of people that really like him, stops. Maybe he already had a lot of dinner invitations. I don't know. But he stops under this sycamore tree where Zacchaeus is hanging, trying to get a glimpse. And he says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. I'm going to your house today. Yeah, I don't think it took long for Zacchaeus to hop off that tree and run home in preparation. Jesus, the Messiah, is coming to my house? Of all households, he's coming to my house? As we see and know the story, it changed his life forever. Or look at Matthew, the gospel writer and disciple of Jesus. Jesus. Another traitor in the eyes of, Jude, of the Jews, because he, again, was working for the Roman Empire, collecting taxes from the Jews, not well looked upon, and yet Jesus calls him to be one of the disciples. The woman at the well, even the disciples, it said, that are looking, on like, confused as to why Jesus would even take the time not only to talk to this woman, but even Jesus knowing this woman, because she's had five husbands already, and the, and the man that he, she was with wasn't, wasn't even her husband. And yet Jesus loved her. So much to the point that she runs back to her village and says, come see a man who told me everything about my life. He knows everything. I can't hide a thing. And he loved me. Look at the 12 disciples. Not quite the 12 guys you would depend on to change the world, right? Fishermen, uneducated, traders. Peter had an uncontrolled tongue that was used by Satan, denied Jesus when he needed him most. Thomas doubted until he could see with his own eyes or feel with his own hands that Jesus was in fact resurrected. You have Judas, who all along Jesus knew that he was actually robbing from the, the, kind of the common bank account. And Jesus even knew that he was going to be the one who betrayed him and ultimately delivered him up to his accusers. And he loved him all through his ministry. James and John are jockeying for the best status and position in God's kingdom while at the same time Jesus is telling him that he's going to go die and bear the sins of the whole world. Oh, Jesus, can, can, can I have first and second pole position in your kingdom? And Jesus going, I'm here to die The son of man is about to die. Yeah, 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 I know, but can I have first place? Yet Jesus still loved them. The point is that Jesus was the perfect demonstration of agape because agape is always shown by what it does, not merely by what it says. It's easy to say, I love you. It can be much more difficult to follow through and show your agape by self-sacrifice and unconditional service. I don't know about you, but uh, I'm still ruminating on Celestan's sermon to us a couple weeks ago. In all transparency, the, the part that is really convicted me and um, is really the part where he says, you show your forgiveness by your pursuit of reconciliation. I was like, huh. But, But Jesus, I have forgiven this person, so show it. Show it. Don't just say it. Because agape is a love that does, not just a love that speaks. Agape is a love that does. And a love that does, I believe, is most profoundly displayed at the the cross of Jesus. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 2? He says, but God, right? But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, a great agape with which he agaped us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And we didn't deserve any of this. We know that, right? We we didn't deserve one bit. But as Paul affirms in Romans 5, 8, he says, but God shows his agape for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Love does, not just says. Jesus even tells us in John fifteen, thirteen, he says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Remember Jesus' final prayer on the cross as he hung there, merciless, alone. What was his final prayer to his father? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Can you think about that? I mean, Jesus is praying for his persecutors. He's praying for the Pharisees that falsely accused him. He's praying for the Roman soldiers who carried out this execution and are are gambling for his clothes. He's praying for the mob of people yelling for his crucifixion. He's praying for the cowardice Pontius Pilate who gives in to the wishes of people to save his own bacon. Even while hanging in agony, Jesus cares for his mother and asks John the Apostle, saying, Take care of my mom. He's still serving, he's still being considerate of others, even at his own expense as he hangs on a cross. The fact is, brothers and sisters, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law of God because he loved the wealthy as well as he loved the poor. He loved those who were what we might consider aristocrats as well as the common. He loved the Jew. He loved the Gentile. He loved the healthy. He loved the sick. He loved the popular. He loved the outcast. Jesus loved He loved, and because love does, he showed his love by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Yes, his message may have been exclusive, but his love was all-inclusive. John tells us that the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Again, it's a reference to Christ the king of light and the king of love is already reigning on his throne. In the fullness, as well as the consummation of, all of that reign is just around the corner. He's already king of kings. He is already Lord of lords. And one day he's coming back to fully consummate, to fully complete his redemptive plan. And how you and I love one another is evidence of all this. Remember what Jesus says, and the world will know that you are my disciples. How? By the love that you have for one another. Maybe another way we could put this is our love for one another is our greatest apologetic to the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus. We don't don't talk a big talk, we show a big talk. We live our message and it begins in the household of faith. We'll speak to this in more detail when we get to chapter four, but let me just say this because it's an important point because at this point you might be going, yeah, that sounds great, but man, Aaron, I struggled. I struggle to do this. I want to be able to do this. I want to be able to agape people as I'm called to, but I'm honest, it's a little difficult. In fact, maybe I failed this morning. Well, let me just say this very briefly. You cannot agape others until you have first been agaped by God the Father. You cannot love others another person unconditionally until you have first been filled by the unconditional love of the Father. John says this in 1 John chapter 4 verse 19, we love because he first loved us. We cannot give what we have not yet received, or in the positive sense, you can only give what you have already received, and this is why John at the very beginning of our passage here, he says beloved Beloved, the word is agapete, agapetos. It's the derivative of agape. You are beloved. John tells these people that really in a way of both identity as well as reminder, you are agaped by God. You have already been the recipient of God's agape. Because you are beloved. And as those who are beloved, may you in turn Agape one another.